0: Well, good morning, good morning, and welcome to our breakfast uh, discussion today on where is China's financial system heading, implications for Europe. My name is Guntram Wolf, and it's a real pleasure to host uh, this debate uh, today. Uh, We have the um, privilege to have um, Prügel Fellow Alicia Garcia Herrero here. Uh, who's normally based in in Hong Kong, but um, who works with us and does a lot of research for us. And she will present an upcoming paper of hers um, on China's financial system. Um, So we will have roughly 20 minutes for that that presentation. And following her presentation, um, we will uh, have an expert panel discussing the key findings and the implications for Europe, um, which... um, uh, uh, I think is, is going to be an, an open discussion which will also allow you to, uh, to inter- inject uh, your wisdom and ask, uh, ask questions. So, so perhaps um, let, me, um, uh, without, uh, let me introduce the panelists later and uh, let's start with a, with a presentation by, by Alicia so that we uh, first get, uh, get into some substance and then we, we come to the panel. Thank you, Alicia. Um, thank
1: you very much. Can you hear me? Yes, that's good. Okay, so good morning, everybody. It's a real pleasure to be here. I feel a little bit scared, actually, to start uh, by the fact that this was a 100-page working paper, and I thought, I can't send this to Guntram; it's just too long. Mm -hmm. And we had, I don't know, like 200 graphs, and I was like, what is this? How come I came up with all of these details on China's banking sector over the years, which... I started working on uh, in 2000, so it's been a while. And 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 the presentation. So I want to warn you. Well, you see, it's even the. It's basically telling me don't start with all of these graphs. <laughs> you know, it's just too detailed for the audience. But I hope I can show you some. If it's um, uh, so, while the while this works. Uh, okay, I'll I give you a little bit of context of what this is about. So. I mean, if you've been following on China's banking sector, the reason why there's so so much information is that it's changed dramatically. So whatever, I mean, if if you study any developed uh, financial sector, you kind of start, you know, and it evolves, but not at the speed China's financial sector has evolved. And on top of that, The economy itself is in transition. So the financial sector is in transition. And on top of that transition, you also have financial liberalization and a catch up in regulation. And of course, a number of restructuring processes out of excess credit and a little bit of cleanup that I will focus mostly about. So a lot of what I'm going to say is about the process of cleanup of a banking sector that has grown so rapidly that Unavoidably, you need to clean it up, because every 10 years, it's basically double its size, if not more. So that's kind of the context of this presentation. So I move on to show you. Check. Is it off? Maybe. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'll I'll try.
0: I switched it on.
1: Yeah. I can I can actually do this without any presentation, so it's okay.
0: <laughs>
1: okay, so um, so first, China's financial sector in this growth context, which totally changes the picture compared to other financial sectors. Then again, the first wave of reform. I'm going to focus on the cleaning up. This is the early two thousands. Then I'm going to talk about the next wave of credit binge, which was since the global financial crisis, to basically 2014, where it starts cleaning up again. So that's the fourth one, the next restructuring wave, which is we are still into that. And then some consequences for Europe of this massive financial sector being cleaned up and cleaned up and growing and clean up and growing, you know, what is it in for us? So I hope I can move this faster. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. So, first one. Now, this is just to give you a sense. When I say that uh, China's growth is kind of pushing the financial sector to be increasingly large, this is what I have in mind. What I have in mind is an economy that in purchasing power parity today is as big as Europe. And even bigger than the US in purchasing power parity, you can argue not in dollar, never mind. But what matters is the upper part of the graph, which is how much China will contribute to global growth in the next five years, in the next 10 years, which is literally, I don't know, like three times even more Europe and double the U.S. So the growth is going to be there in the financial sector. We're not yet at status quo. So wait for more, actually, and a lot is already happening. So when we move to the financial sector, okay, sorry it's going to be very painful if it moves only so slowly yes. thank you yeah here we go so on top of that i mean uh, many people have uh, analyzed and it's not very difficult to do that that china's financial sector is not only big today because it ballooned it's because it was big from the very beginning so if you actually look at credit to gdp in china even before the growth Process, it was already very big. And I think one of the reasons is, of course, massive savings and a closed capital account. So all of the savings are, say, trapped in China, and they've been trapped at the level of nearly, before it was even 50% of GDP a year. So imagine how much you can do with such a high saving ratio. So so basically, China's greater GDP is as already as high as Europe or, you know, Japan, so it's, it's massive. This is just to give you a sense of that growth story in bank assets. So what you have here, if I can't point, yeah, I'm, it's a, yeah it does, but not very, so China's bank assets today are very close to those of Europe already, but coming in 2005 from something of the other 5 trillion to 45 trillion, that's the growth story. And by the way, everything is growing, market capitalization, uh, bond, bond market. is not only credit, but the bulk, and that's why I'm going to focus on banks here, the bulk of the growth and even the bulk of the size of China's financial sector is in the banks' hands, still today. So you, you basically have a comparison with the US, much, much, much bigger banking sector. Now, uh, this graph is, I hope, inter- is of interest to you. Now, if China's banking sector today is as big as that of Europe, and by the way, European bank assets are much bigger than those of the US, the question is, how big will China's banking sector will end up being? Because China is still in the financial deepening process, because its income per capita is one third of that of Europe. So, you know, the idea is, as they become richer, they will still be maybe not necessarily bank assets, maybe other types of capital markets but the point is the financial sector will be even bigger so just doing that extrapolation of how big uh so you see that is the five trillion that i had before bank assets all the way to 42 trillion europe you know so basically if you draw the line and, and you bring china in 2030 to an income per capita two-thirds of that of europe so in between you will end up with 65 trillion in bank assets. So it will be by far, by far, the largest banking sector in the world, by far. So that's what we're talking about. So what, what what's the impact on the rest of the world, of this massive banking sector? So we also know that all of this growth in bank assets um, didn't happen for free. What I mean to say is that Yes, in a way, I could actually say that because China's income per capita is one-third of that of Europe is, if if I may say, it's overbanked. I mean, bank assets are too big for that income per capita. Mm -hmm. Yeah? So, something must have... Exactly. Due to the trap saving ratio. So, what what are the two implications that I'm showing you here? One is that, of course, massive credit to GDP gap is too... It's credit in excess. So when you have credit in excess, the very first thing that happens is that the return on assets is increasingly low. So China's return on assets today is one-third of what it used to be because of this massive credit growth. So this is the side effect of, of the growth story, that you just can't find enough projects to keep that return on assets at a decent level which brings me to the need for cleanup, yeah, an immediate link with, with the rest of the story. Now, the other very important thing that we, I, I can't underestimate the importance of, of this, is that on top of everything I said, China's banking sector is still state-owned dominated. We may argue that, yes, the share, you see there, the state-owned commercial banks uh, the, the violet line, plus policy banks fully state-owned. Maybe some, of course, they are, uh, You know, uh, they have some float, but not enough to even make a difference in terms of who determines the policies of these banks, let alone policy banks. All of this is an arm of the central government and an arm of a policy instrument of the central government. So if you need more credit, there you go. You know, you have window guidance, credit targets, and these banks will basically execute China's fiscal and monetary policy, in a way. It's like an immediate uh, multiplier. You just, you know, you don't have to deal with the market, basically. You just order and it will be executed. And this is very important to understand why the credit pinch was so massive. Because there was no way for the bank to say, okay, for the banks to say, not really, this is too fast. I mean, instructions were given. and, And this is very, very important. You may say that this... The share of uh, state-owned ownership is coming down, but I would argue, and you know, knows about this, uh, having you know, worked for a bank that was invested in one of the supposedly private banks, joint stock commercial banks, that they are not fully in private. Some are, but not all. So I would argue that a bunch of all of those other colors you see there are still, to the largest state, st- extent, state-owned, or at least receive government instructions. This helps China a lot. I'm not saying that this is necessarily a very bad thing in itself because it facilitates the conduct of fiscal and monetary policy, but it has other consequences. Then you need to clean up. So you use them, you clean up. You use them, you clean up. This is kind of the the finding, actually, of the paper, that the way this is run requires restructuring because you're using the banks for other purposes, basically growth purposes, development purposes, uh, monetary and fiscal policy purposes. So I'm going to start very quickly with the, f- with the second part, very, very quickly. Uh, for details, please refer to the paper. Hopefully it'll be published soon because this is too detailed for the audience. I'm very aware of this. I just want to give it, in a nutshell, the idea of the first restructuring phase. So why did we have the first and when? It was the beginning of the 2000s, after two reform, I mean, restructuring of the state-owned enterprises in China, you can imagine. Anybody who's done any research on transition economies understands immediately that the fiscal deficit ballooned and on top of that banks were saddled with non-performing loans out of this restructuring. So how did China clean up? At that time, there was public money. Actually, it was reserves, foreign reserves, very interestingly. (laughs) It was it was dollars being used to recapitalize the banks, but never mind. Uh, there was lots written as to whether that should have been the case. Never mind. But th- there was public money. On top of that, they took assets out of the banks, transferred to newly created asset management companies, yeah, and added... Added value that was not necessarily market value. Let's face it. Starting with face value, going slightly down, but these asset management companies never recovered anything similar to what they paid for. So there was already some implicit additional, yeah, because these are semi. Today, actually, they're listed in the Ajuarum, but you know, at the origin, they were semi quasi government agencies. And on top of that, foreign investors came along as strategic investors so they put some additional capital and there were ipos for you know kind of more diversified investors so these four types of phases and they did bank by bank so you know china construction bank bank of china icbc the last one was Agriculture Bank of China, which started only in 2008 in the midst of the financial crisis, and nobody ever knew how it ended, actually, because in a way it came too late in the game and at a very difficult time for China. But we kind of, uh, and we wrote a long paper on this as to the cost, this is a lot of detail of who put the money, it was relatively complicated to then figure where the money was coming from, never mind, there was public money, and and we estimated that the whole process of public money being restructuring or the transfer of to asset management companies was something of the other 20% of, of 2004 GDP. So, uh, you know, the, fir- the first three banks that I mentioned, excluding Agriculture Bank of China. So, so, so CIC, so it was, again, coming from the reserves. They they created a... a, a what they created They used Huijing, which is like a SPV of CIC2, to recapitalize the banks. Yes, but central government, government, yeah, essential. central government money. So, um, now, the, the, all of this helped a lot to reduce the MPL ratio. So you can imagine, of course, remember, the NPL ratio is a ratio. So because credit kept on growing, that also helped a lot because the denominator kept on growing. So this is the miracle of China's bank reform. This is not Japan. When your denominator grows 10% even more, yeah, a year, nominal growth in China, even 12, even 14 at a certain instance, 2010, I mean, sorry, I can also, I mean, I'm not uh, saying that this was not hard and I really admire the Chinese authorities who did this, but frankly, when you have nominal growth, everything can be cleaned up if you're clever enough not to do too many mistakes. But it's much harder when your denominator does not move, yeah? And this is really when you are stuck. So the key question is, then, will there be a time where the denominator will not move in China, where this restructuring, natural restructuring process, because credit growth is too high, will not be as easy? We're not yet there. So the the second uh, bunch of restructuring I'm going to talk about is still in this nice growth story that 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 we were then it was not only uh, easy and again I, I i still admire those who came up with these nice ideas because it's quite sophisticated but but i'm just saying it was easier than in japan on top of that financial repression was still present because china had not yet fully liberalized interest rates so actually interest rates were extremely low for China's growth. So the natural rate, that graph only tries to show where China's natural rate should have been. If you think of a country growing nominally 10%, that's your interest rate, 10%. But it happened to be you know, much lower. So there was a lot of financial repression helping out to restructure, because the deposits were trapped in a low-interest environment. Uh, this is slightly less obvious today in the current restructuring, not as easy. Yeah, because the deposit rate has been fully liberalized it's not as cheap uh, for the government so then what happened the global financial crisis uh, headed and we had this massive credit binge why did we have it well because rightly so yeah, the world was collapsing and China had these nice instruments which were the banks to accommodate the credit growth needed to support the economy how? through local governments which were through local government financial vehicles, yeah, investing in infrastructure, and also corporate state-owned enterprises in particular, investment. So it was a massive investment boom. That's when China stops being driven by external demand and starts being massively driven by investment, this investment growth model that we always talk about. And the banks were the intermediaries of that model. So um, so at every point in time since then, uh, so it's hard to see that graph, but I hope you can understand it, GDP growth was pretty intense, as you see, 2009, recovering to you know, very, very high levels. This is nominal GDP growth. Yeah? So you see there the 15 percent I was talking about, I mean, massive, 2010, very high nominal growth. but. Credit was growing even faster, and if you move beyond banks, so total social financing and other measures of total credit in the economy, at a point it was growing 35%. It was an absolute credit binge of of dimensions that probably the world has never seen, frankly, in recent economic history. And that is what you see with the the credit to GDP or, you know, who was getting the money mainly corporate and local governments, as I mentioned. So what happened uh, next is that, well, this is just a measure of the fact that, yes, I'm focusing on banks. Let, do not forget, though, that all of this shadow banking that was created, that you may have heard about China having this massive non-bank financial sector, a lot of it unregulated, not all, um, was growing also very, very fast. Um, uh, to the point that, uh, you know, in, at the, in the highest growth years, 2010 to 2012, were, was about 18% of total credit. So now, who is behind this to a large extent? The banks themselves. They were the largest issuers of shadow banking products, in particular wealth management products, as you see in that graph. So whoever thinks that here's the shadow banking, Here's the banking sector. No. I attended a conference in Beijing in 2012. And the banks were so positive about shadow banking. And to me, I just couldn't understand, you know. I mean, I, I thought they would be fiercely opposing. Right. No, because, you know, basically these were the same groups. You had the trust companies. So it was really, the idea was trust, which are the second largest issuers there of well-management products. So I have a client. My deposit rate is uh, capped because at the time they were capped, I can't offer anything decent to you, so I send you for a fee, yeah, referral fee to my trust company, which issues a wealth management product for you. And by the way, I can't offer credit to real estate developers anymore because I have, again, a limit from CBRC, so I send my client to the trust company who will invest in that infrastructure project with the money of the client that I couldn't serve because I couldn't offer the right you know, return on on his investment. So so fee income, actually, in for Chinese banks, ballooned. The net interest margin came down, and the fee income ballooned. So it was a model that actually appealed to everybody. And I think that explains its growth story, because there wasn't necessarily... This was at the beginning. Of course, later, things got uh, much tougher for banks, yeah, and they wanted their full money and they started to oppose, but at the beginning it was very comfortable, so it grew very, very rapidly. Yeah, sure. So uh, now, um, on corporate debt, and everybody talks about corporate debt, uh, whether this is sustainable in China, blah, 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 what banks are going to do. Well, the reality is that it was all about how your profits, how much money you were making that would allow you to borrow more, more, more. And the key of the second restructuring phase, which I'm going to hopefully go through very quickly, started when those profits disappeared because they could just not serve the debt or the credit that they had borrowed from the banks. That's when the need for the second restructuring comes up, which is basically 2013, 14, you know, heading up to the horrible 2015 where really uh, we had uh, just to give you a sense, zombie, in the way they define it, corporates. So a debt to interest expense below one, meaning they could not even serve the interest. At some point in time, 20% of Chinese listed companies were in that situation in 2015. So you had to clean up. And how did they clean up? So I'm going to move very quickly, jump a few slides. When they hit the wall, i.e. the profits came down, how did they clean up? How are they cleaning up? Because it's still happening today. The first phase, oh, jump, 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 sorry. I need to choose my slide. So you see return on the banks needed, the net interest margin was coming down very aggressively. The deposit rate had been liberalized in 2015. Everything was making the banks hit the wall. The return on assets, the return on equity, everything was, there's a lot of a dual story here because state-owned commercial banks were doing better than the newly you know the, the the most private ones, but but how, what did they do? Uh, of course, uh, solvency ratios were starting. There was no no more um, organic capital being created, so they had to literally you know flood the market with uh, issuance to to basically be able to cope with the capital needs to to keep their balance sheet growing. This is very important for Europe as well, because this is going to continue. We heard in the IIF conference that. Uh, And this was only, I think, for joint stock commercial banks, if if I'm not mistaken, you may correct me, Genevieve, something of the order of 600 billion in capital needs coming. This is going to flood the market, so, you know, for European banks, especially cross-border, so Euro, especially if if they want to raise uh, Euro-denominated capital, it's going to be very expensive because there's going to be massive issues from Chinese banks going forward, and this is not, not new. Yes, jumping, jumping to how they clean up. So two, two parts of the cleanup of the 2008 to 2012 credit bench. As I said, there were two origins of this massive credit, local governments and corporates. So local governments, what did they do? They did a credit to debt swap, meaning I, the local governments or the vehicles had a loan with the bank. Sorry, give me the loan. I give you a piece of paper. yeah, and the government will guarantee to some extent so they they started substituting those loans with because of course, in regulatory uh, in terms of capital needs, etc is of course much cheaper. The consequence of all of that this is the amount that was cleaned up i 'm rushing sorry if i 'm not being very clear, but basically these are relevant numbers, and you know, this is percentage of GDP. That great binge for some, and we have the national audit having calculated more or less how much it was, some people put it all the way to 30% of GDP. So, you know, they've cleaned a recent part of that. and. Bear in mind, though, that this is pushing down banks' profitability, because, of course, the bond paper is not going to pay you what the local governments thought they could pay you with a loan, yeah? So it's going down from 10% of average interest rate to not even two or three, so below, basically, uh, refinancing rate of the PBOC, so very, very low for banks. So that hits their profitability. The other way they are cleaning up, and I finish here just the scene the on Europe in a minute, is corporate, corporate debt. How are they cleaning up corporate debt? They're only focusing on state-owned enterprises, especially overcapacity ones, and only state-owned banks. So state-owned banks, which had a loan, say, with Huarong uh, NT, the first debt-to-acuteal uh, that happened, or Sinus Steel, a massive uh, default, but it was never a full default because, you know, basically, uh, say Sinus Steel, it had massive, amounts of loans with the banks. Here you go, I give you equity. So I'm now the owner of your, or, you know, uh, partial owner of your company. And the beauty of this, the two equity swaps, as they evolved, not the first one, which was full equity for the banks, so very costly in terms of capital, as you can understand. There, there on, they realize this is too expensive. We create an SPB, a little, you know, thing there that we do, of course, not consolidate, and just put it there. And in that way, they've cleaned up about 15 to 20% of problem loans in China already. And nobody sees the consequences because it's, not, it's at face value, so the banks don't lose anything. The company gets new equity. From where? From maybe a lifer or an asset management company. So from the rest of the financial sector that is investment through the SPV to put the equity there. So it's kind of beautiful, you know? It's like, oh my God, how did they come up with this idea? It's like so cheap in terms of very different from the past. No public money, but as we say in Spanish, you bury after, you know, below the carpet. Now, the problem is China's carpet is pretty tough. Why? Because you're growing very fast. So that loss there keeps on shrinking in terms of your GDP. So as long as nobody sees it, you know, keeps on shrinking, shrinking, until you just smash it. This is the beauty of restructuring with high growth, which nobody can afford, except, you know, probably China, very few other countries. So I think this is very, very interesting, that that what looks crazy, if, if you think about it, yeah, I mean, it's like, to some extent, even households buying these products that are then put into the equity of a company that supposedly is insolvent. Yeah. But the thing is, if you give a principal guarantee for seven years, actually, as long as they could even pay your principal, but you've lost 70% if your nominal growth is so high. You know? It's like really a lot of it is the fact that you're dealing with unsophisticated investors, that you're doing it in a very, very um, complicated way, and that it's allowed because you're not consolidating, I mean, the regulator is not asking you to consolidate your balance sheet, so you can do it. And maybe, frankly, to be frank, if, you, if I were a Chinese policymaker, maybe I would choose this option because it's less, um, it's less costly than in financial crisis, and it's probably less costly in terms of public debt than, than just injecting again. Because so when they injected, the banks were 5 trillion in bank assets. Today, there are 40 plus trillion, so you need so much. You know such an increase in public debt that you cannot afford, so I'm just going to go to the conclusions before Gun stops me altogether uh, so this basically compares the two restructuring uh, options uh now uh, on the conclusions, one thing that of course the Chinese government can do going forward is to open up to foreign competition why because First, they need to divest so many assets. So there's a lot of securitization happening now in China. And for that, you know, you can understand that the opening up to asset management companies, even to insurance companies, is actually quite interesting. I'm just pointing to the fact that foreign banks and foreign institutions, other than those operating with joint ventures, are making no money in China, sorry to say so. It's going to be pretty tough to find foreign investors, other than with nice joint ventures, you yeah, have Belgium AGS with Typing. That's great because Typing is a state-owned insurance company. You make money. It's great. But what about those that are st- alone in that very competitive? So there, what I'm showing there is that the cost to income is double and that the return on asset is half. So it's not going to be so easy to find foreign investors, maybe in the asset management industry, maybe in the insurance industry, maybe with a joint venture, but I think just go there on your own. It's not going to be. And by the way, the assets of foreign banks in China have only gone down to now a mere 1.3%. You cannot even see them. Because how can you cope with the growth of the rest of the system? You need so much capital. It's so expensive. So I don't think opening up, I'm not saying they won't. I'm saying it's not going to change the picture. It's not, China is too big for the rest of the world, put it this way. We can't possibly cope with the growth of this uh, banking sector. But what they are doing, and this is very important for Europe, this is my key point in Europe, is going themselves abroad. Why would you not go abroad if your return on assets is low? If you know that, frankly, you're going to, next cleanup is going to be harder, because growth will be lower, you know, because the system will be massive, Cause, so you, you may as well go out now. And this is why overseas loans are growing and growing and growing. And they will continue to grow. And policy banks in particular, I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative, they're all inbe- lending abroad. Yeah, Only Latin America, there's figures of $150 billion. I mean, it's just massive. China's will become, to me, I'm telling you now, Although we don't have statistics, I hope China starts uh, reporting to the BIS because they're a major lender today. They only report as a recipient, but they become a major cross-border bank lender. So please report to the BIS and show the world how, I mean, your lending arm, which is massive. So so they will probably become the largest lender. Now it's European banks still today. So what are the, the things for, for Europe? Um Chinese banks, especially state-owned banks, will be reinforced from this current shakeup because they're the ones being cleaned up for nearly free. You see, they they are the ones receiving the, disposing the loans at face value. Somebody else is the equity holder of that. So they're going to be stronger. I even think, and we discussed this yesterday, will be even more consolidation in China. So maybe smaller banks will be absorbed by larger and thus state-owned banks. To it and to avoid any kind of liquidity risk or you know any kind of event that could happen so they're going to be much stronger you know from a very strong standpoint that we are already at yeah like in terms of uh, lending capability especially overseas mm. uh, and because their regulatory environment is certainly not ours and I'm not saying that the regulators are not doing big efforts to catch up on TILAC on you name it, but certainly we're not at the European level whatsoever, they have a massive comparative advantage. They have a massive comparative advantage, and they have the government, in the same way as during the global financial crisis, they were pushing them to lend. Now they're pushing them to lend abroad. They're pushing them to go to Pakistan, Pakistan, uh, Pakistan-China economic corridor, 50 billion, Russia, you know, gas pipelines, 70 billion, you name it. So it's going to be very difficult for European banks, this is my main conclusion, to compete in third markets. So the shrinking of uh, European banks' market share in cross-border lending, don't be surprised. It's not only about European banks' inability or regulatory environment, which I'm not saying is not relevant, it's because there's a massive competitor today that was not there before and I'm not saying this is bad or you know life changes we all have to get used to different competitive environments it's not a criticism to China whatsoever but I'm saying I think it would be important for us to realize because I, I have the feeling that sometimes it's like we focus so much on regulation that we don't look at the different competitive landscape that is there today and in in, in good part not only because Japanese banks are also there big time but I think the China phenomenon can be of a size that nobody can compare with because of the 65 trillion I mentioned at the very beginning which is kind of the target by 2030 so you know if it's just going to flood uh, the world with with cross-border lending from China so I leave it here thank you
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, Alicia, for this passionate presentation on, on China and the Chinese financial system. I'm now pleased to uh, to host uh, a panel debate, and um, our first speaker will be uh, Jean Ma, who is head of China research at the Institute for International Finance, and has worked uh, previously um, at ISI Group, uh, CITIC Securities, as well as the Chinese Ministry of Finance, um, and has had visiting professorships at University of Illinois in George Washington. Gene, uh, um, I'm sure you have lots lots to say on, on this topic, so we very much look forward to your comments.
2: To be here, I have heard so much about Bruegel and I read so much you published, but that's my first time to uh, set my foot um, uh, in the door be here in person, so it's really an honor. Um, So, uh, Alicia gave a really nice presentation about the status change of China's uh, financial system. I may be able to uh, shift the focus a little bit, talk a bit a lot more. What does that mean for the European countries? What are the opportunities and challenges? Um, First, um, we have 30 members in China, the the banks, insurance firms. They really love to learn what happened to the European financial institutions in the past decade. Uh, because the, the experience in Europe is a lot more applicable, applicable to China than, than the American experience because he is also bank dominated the whole financial system uh, like China. So for example, I don't know how many times those people ask me, do you have any research of how Spanish banks survived the boom and bust of, a, of a, uh, a real estate cycle? And how the European banks de-leveraged, recapitalized, disposed of the uh, bad loans? Do, can we do anything in Italy to do it, uh, in the bad loan business? So you really care a lot about the European experience, uh, and I also think um, there's a little uh, or less uh, political barrier uh, between the cooperation of the uh, European financial institutions and the Chinese uh, institutions. I, I can give you a few examples. Take example of ARIB, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, Britain was the first one, first non-Asian country to sign up, right, is right now also have, the, hold the, uh, the vice president position. And the French also held a, a vice president position in IB. However, uh, US just, uh, uh, too, too shy uh, to join uh, that club. Uh, in my view, I think there's a pretty good chance in next two or three years Japan will also join NIB, then the US will be the only one left out. Okay. Same thing uh, with the Belt Road. Um, US, uh, there's even uh, uh, people working on Belt Road, but that's to put on uh, roadblocks on those roads or cut off the belts. Uh, but however, I was in London Monday, Tuesday, uh, there are at least two London asset manager companies that are setting up. Belt Road Fund. I'm so surprised. I don't know how, where they, they can invest. How can they can invest? But anyway, the sum this is good for the marketing. You can they can sell this fund. Uh, I suspect they probably just invest uh, in the bonds uh, issued by Chinese companies uh, doing business uh, in the Belt Road countries. Um, and for example, um, um, London is working. Very closely um, with Beijing to set up a so-called Hong Kong, no, the Shanghai-London Stock Connect. Um, we on the right now currently we have Stock Connect between Hong Kong and Shanghai. Beijing loved the scheme because they think this is not a capital liberalization; it's just a it's managed the liberalization. Okay, because you can imagine when they allowed Chinese people buy Hong Kong stocks. The moment you liquidate your Hong Kong stock, money flow back on shore immediately, right? <coughs> According to the design of the mechanism. So there's no leakage in the stock connect. So Beijing liked the idea, and the London think, well, after Brexit, when you do something to protect our uh, financial sector status. So they also want to jump aboard. So for example, uh, China also uh, extended uh, the trading hour for foreign exchange to, the, to overlap with the European hours. So that means uh, as theoretically, even right now trading volume is still very thin. Just started theoretically, and uh, a foreign exchange trader uh, in London, hopefully later on also in Paris, uh, they can basically trade a uh, China's currency onshore from the seat uh, in London, in Paris, through the Connect system. They're so working on those things. And uh, I just cannot imagine such a connect system, such cooperation can happen between Beijing and Washington anytime soon. Now regarding the opportunities, uh, uh, um, let's first focus on uh, what can we expect Chinese to do in Europe and also then what Europeans can do in China. Right now, we are seeing a lot more uh, foreign direct investment from China into Europe. There are happy stories. There are not so happy stories. Um, And uh, So I think, so far, most of the FDIs are still in the manufacturing sector. Um, Not not exactly. They also bought 10% by Deutsche Bank. Um, And then, um, I think in the in, the, in uh, going forward, we may see more such investment uh, in, in the financial sector. Right now, what I uh, have seen so far is that um, say, Hong Kong Stock Exchange they bought uh, London Metal Exchange uh, because uh, uh, China is a large commodity user, uh, so they really want to have a say in the commodity pricing. On uh, Shanghai Stock Exchange. Uh, they are right now acquiring stakes uh, in the stock change in developing countries, like say Karachi or uh, those uh, uh, Southeast Asia countries. And uh, I think they're also uh, very actively talking with exchanges uh, in Europe. Um, if not acquire some certain stake, or be set up some joint program. So a lot of things going on. Then regarding the uh, uh, the opportunities in China, as I just said, um, Doing business in China is always like this. Because nothing is easy, but at the same time, nothing is, uh, is impossible. Okay. So whilst, uh, Most people think, well, it's impossible for foreign hedge fund to do anything in China because of regulations, they don't want a hedge fund. Then wait a minute, how much money Bridgewater is managing for, for China right now, right? Because they have uh, the right uh, connection. Um, I think, so, in terms of the, um, uh, the financial market and, and the product, uh, the bond market right now is already wide open. Um, in, in fact, uh, Europeans, I believe Europeans made more money than the American investors last year by buying Chinese bonds because uh, if you buy the right bond, off you four or five percent yield and uh, RMB appreciated a little bit last year. Um, you can get almost close to 10% yield on investing in Chinese bond last year. Equity is much difficult. China's stock market uh, is a big, extremely liquid. It's the most liquid market in the world. So um, there are some Russian that doing uh, quant trading, high-frequency trading in, Chi- uh, in Shanghai. They made a both of money because it's very liquid. And, uh, but at the same time, it's very volatile. It's a huge volatile. Um, it takes years to climb up. And that came down in two months, um, so it's will be much, much, much more difficult for for investors. Now, in terms of um, uh, institutions, what can um, I see? As uh, Alicia says, no doubt uh, the banks are having a much uh, tougher time over there. Not only because uh, um, uh, the capital base is not big enough, uh, and also but the risk appetite are quite different. So for example, uh, the Chinese banks made a huge amount of money uh, by lending to the property sector in the the local government because they see, well, uh, they have some implicit guarantee by the government um, in in Beijing, since they are willing to take the risk. Um, But for the foreign banks, foreign investors, these are taboo, no touching zone. So, so, so much much more difficult. Um, but at the same time, I see, I see two opportunities um, for the foreign financial institutions. Um, French are very keen to tap into uh, the derivative market. Uh, right now, the China derivative market um, is still relatively small, but I expect to grow very quickly. For example, uh, Shanghai just launched um, the uh, crude oil futures. Denominating RMB, settling RMB, but that's the very first uh, commodity uh, deri- derivative uh, available for foreign investors. And the French believe that they yeah, just get it, uh, they're much better uh, at the mathematics uh, than the Americans. So even in American banks, it's uh, 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 the, uh, the derivative desks are full of French. So they're very keen to do the derivative business uh, on shore in China. As a managers, uh right now, uh, because asset managers can uh, um, obtain a certain sort of woofy the uh, wholly foreign owned uh, um, enterprises. So that means you can do your business without a joint venture partner. you do not want to uh, give up your trade secret, you can set up your own wholly owned uh, enterprise. Um, I think right now there are eight asset uh, managers um, have. So UFI, went as a WUFI, writing as WUFI, also acquired a private fund management license. That is, you can sell your product uh, to uh, the Chinese qualified investors. Um, um, three, eight acquired a license, three are issuing products right now. Right now, it's still small uh, because they do not have that, that name recognition. You don't have uh, the track record onshore, but they are starting doing this business right now. Now, these are opportunities uh, I can see at this moment. Thank you you very
0: much, uh, Gene, for for, for these comments and and remarks. Now, our second speaker is uh, Hu Yuwei. Dr. Dr. Hu um, uh, is uh, a research fellow at um, the uh, um, China Institute uh, of Finance and Capital Markets. Um, and department head of international finance at that at that institute, in fact, and has previous uh, work at the BBVA, at the OECD, um, at various other institutions, World Bank consultants at World Bank, at the, at the European Commission, at the IMF, um, and he's a frequent commentator in Chinese and international media. So, uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Hu, you way. Thank you so much for coming, and uh, we look forward to your comments.
3: Thank you, Chair, for your kind uh, introduction. So, first of all, I would like congratulate, you know, Alicia, my former colleagues at the BBVA, for this excellence, you know, the, the paper. So, I'm looking forward to reading to read, you know, 100-page papers. So, so indeed, today, you know. Personally, I have learned quite a lot from the particular you know, presentation. So even some news and data are quite new and for me and as well. So I mean, thank you for uh, for I mean for giving this presentation. So so indeed, I ha- I do have some uh, comments. You know, but given time constraints, I'd like to only focus on two and um, topics or two issues I will share with our audience today. So first of all, regarding you know, the, few, the current status or future of Chinese banking sector uh, in China, because you know, the main uh, discussion, fo- mainly focusing on Chinese banking sector, so I think you know, China banking sector now is in a crucial time, so uh, largely given the changing external uh, environments, either in China and also abroad. So indeed the banking sector now facing pressure, I think, in terms of profitability, et cetera. They are due to different uh, reasons, that's my personal uh, thought. First of all, for example, like uh, Alicia just mentioned regarding the interest rates, uh, liberalization, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Indeed now in you know, the central bank, for example, now have been working on issue for a while, and and now we are moving toward direction of full uh, interest rate uh, liberalization. So if now, it, uh, hap- I mean, as we have happening now, uh, we are seeing, I mean, what is happening in China, in banking sector, indeed, the banks, including the big banks and also smaller banks, they are facing quite a lot of pressure from the particular policy initiative. Probably particularly for the small and medium-sized banks, because in terms of economic scale, et cetera, they are not so competitive to the big four banks uh, in China. So probably the trouble is more for them. I think that's referred to what Alicia mentioned, the market consolidation in China because they are small, they are smaller, they do not have you know, much uh, support from central government, for example, they are facing, for example, declining, declining base, et cetera, so the, the problem is more um, for them. So that's first issue I'd like to mention, uh, which I think directly linked to the, uh, to the current uh, developments of uh, banking sector in China. So secondly, I think I also refer to you know, the, the, the rapid, probably, I mean, trem- tremendous growth of the uh, high-tech company in China. I think yesterday, you know, over the past two days, you know, some of our colleagues here also was in the IIF you know, meetings. So my impression is that, you know, in Europe as well, so most of the audience or the speakers mentioned quite a lot about growth of the high-tech company impacts for the financial sector. Probably the issue, is I think, is probably more urgent, serious in China maybe heard about the name of Alibaba or Baidu among others. So indeed, I think in China they are competing very strongly with the traditional banks, even including the big four banks, ICBC or Bank of China, et cetera. Now I think they are feeling the real pressure from them. So in terms of the client, in terms of the the commission fee, et cetera. So indeed, I think they are feeling uh, quite in the strong uh, competition. From them, so uh, my understanding that at beginning, you know, they wanted to use, for now, to lobby, you know, to the central government to control, to contain the growth of the uh, of the uh, high tech companies uh, there and their business in the financial market. But now I think suddenly, I think over the past couple of years, the uh, big four banks, particularly, they're getting more open, you know, to these things. So I think that's. uh, kind of the natural um, financial illusion in China, revolution in China. So no people can stop this. Having said that, so far, all the big four banks, now they are patent with the big, you know, for uh, high-tech company in China, including Alibaba, by the etc. They set a joint venture, the joint venture on banking sector. So in that sense, so they want to take advantage of the platform, you know, uh, uh, the strengths in the particular issue, then to, uh, to, uh, to jointly, you know, develop uh, in China. So, but in any case, I think the traditional banking sector and business, they are facing pressure from the, uh, the platform uh, as well uh, in China. A third issue I don't mention regarding the aging population. So um, I, think, I think somehow the aging population also had big impact for China as well. In the presentation, Alicia mentioned the saving rate in China, saving rate of course including pro- public uh, saving, uh, private saving rate, um, uh, et cetera. So here I have some data that, you know, regarding deposits. Uh, you know depo- uh, the the bank deposit in China. In 2016, the total bank deposits was 150 trillion uh, uh, RMB. The rate, comp- the year-to-year growth rate was 11%. And 2017, the total amount of depo- bank deposit was 164 trillion US dollar uh, RMB, and growth rate was 9%. So we can see, you know, that the, the bank deposits now have been declining. <laughs> I mean, of course, there are many reasons uh, to explain this. Um, but my, I think you know, one of reason, the reasons because China is aging. Actually, China is already aged. Maybe you're familiar with some data. So uh, 11% of the Chinese population now is up, I mean, about age of 65. So which refers to a population of the 160 million people I rem- uh, I think this amount roughly you know equivalent to the combined population of the two biggest you know, EU countries, Germany and France plus Belgium. So you know only the age population now you know, equivalent to you know the, the, the whole population of three you know important countries in the EU. So we also know that by theory and by international appearances, so when China is aging, probably we're still in the asset accumulation process. And also given the traditional Chinese people like to save, but they put a lot of money in the banks. But now I think China somehow is in the transition. We are in transition of the fee accumulation. That's mean Chinese age population with they are going to spend money. Actually, that also explains why Chinese currently the consumption. Now it's contributing to the bigger share of the GDP compared to the past uh, decades. So the, here is about three points. I want like to mention. Uh, they are the three important factors behind uh, the, uh, the developments of banking sector uh, in, the, uh, in the future. I think they are quite uh, important. So second issue I like to touch on refers to the uh, uh, the, business, uh, the potential business for, for foreign uh, partners either abroad or either uh, in China. Further, again, regarding the banking sector, again, in one of the slide, Alicia mentioned that you know, the banking asset, foreign banking asset now only account, accounted for 1.3% of Chinese total banking sector, asset, 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 unfortunately. So we used to work in the same BBB bank. So we, we, we know, you know the, the main story behind that. But that was the past, that's our story. That's means we, if we're looking forwards. So my understanding that starting from this year, the China, uh, I think now more committed to open up the the policy, the, uh, the, the market to the uh, to the foreign uh, the uh, the companies. Uh, for example, now you know. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. Recently, including uh, the uh, banking regulator, and also now the banking and insurance regulator, and uh, the security regulator, we announced you know a big you know reform proposal to encourage more uh, you know uh, to to, uh, to increase the market accessibility uh, in that sense. And also, at the and, and same time, recently, I talked to some friends or colleagues in the Chinese uh, banks, Chinese banks. I just asked them, so what's your view about you know, recent you know, um, financial liberalization when in the banking sector? I think many of them, the, the, the frankly speaking they, they said they, they are feeling the pressure they're the a little bit you know, concerned about you know, what's the future we develop in the future uh, in China banking sector. Because they are working there, so they probably no more uh, uh, news or new, uh, uh, they are more feeling about the particular issue. So I think you know, foreign uh, international companies uh, of banks are still have their advantage strengths in working in China. Hopefully in the, in, the, in the future, I mean the, the, in the proportion of the foreign asset in China could uh, increase. Secondly, going out, you know, going out, and also we mentioned quite a lot about the one belt one road initiative. So, personally, I think, you know, I mean, indeed, that's the, the, the huge investment gap, you know, in terms of the, uh, the the one belt one road initiative. I remember that, I mean, the ADB, the Asia Development Bank, so they re- re- released reports mentioning that, you know, uh, between 2015 to t- 2030, you know, the investment bank, the financing, I mean, uh, the gap. Uh, along the one by one initiative could be more than 26 uh, trillion. You know, uh, sorry 2.6 trillion and uh, US dollar, a huge amounts. Having said that, I mean, the Chinese government cannot finance everything. So uh, even now, given the, given the current, you know, uh, the strict financial regulation, I don't think Chinese government, I mean, all the, the I mean, investment, I mean, the army, et cetera, can finance all of the funds. Having said that, I mean, we also, at the moment, we are looking for diversify, we want to see, to, to raise more funds from international markets, that's the first point. Secondly, I think we want to also diversify the way to finance projects. Before, you know, most funding are mainly from bank I mean from the bank loans, or et cetera, either from the policy banks or from the, the big, you know, the IC, big, big four banks, et cetera. But also now we really want to encourage you know, participation. Uh, we want to encourage the way the equity financing. So we also, we also want to you know, uh, consider the feasibility or necessity to raise more funds from the capital markets rather only financed by bank loans or a bond, et cetera. So in essence, for sure, you know, uh, in China, we also considering different, you know, uh, uh, international markets, et cetera, you know, to have to really diversify uh, the, the funding, uh, you know, the, the matters, and also in order to reduce the risk related to this particular uh, the, the, the case. So yeah, let me stop here, so maybe we can interrupt later. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you, thank you very much. Um, last but not least, um, I'm happy to welcome Elena Flores, uh, who is the director for international economic and financial relations and global governance in the European Commission's DG ECFIN, and is a sort of a well-known expert on financial, uh, global financial uh, matters, um, with a distinguished career in the European Commission, and she will. Uh, reflect, I guess, on what we think uh, of all of this from a European point of view.
4: Thank you, Elena. Thank you very much and thanks for inviting me and the nice words of of introduction. I I don't think that I would qualify myself as a financial expert. Uh, Far from that, Uh, in particular having heard the other participants this morning and thanks to Alicia because it was uh, very rich uh, and really triggering to read the full paper because I think there are a, a lot of very interesting findings. So to complete a bit uh, what has been said and and bring a little bit of a broader angle, I would say I was looking at the financial sector uh, in China in terms of what that has meant in in the macroeconomic developments and what that means for Europe as well in in this respect, so the interlinkages between financial sector and and some other parts um, of the economy. So the way uh, the way we see it is that uh, indeed the financial sector and that has been said in China has played a major role in the in the development of the growth model of, as we know it. And uh, I would say it has been a very critical vehicle for state intervention in the economy. Alicia very clearly explained that politically driven allocation of capital and as a consequence, the build up of major imbalances as as we know them. So that's a bit the background in which we are we are looking. And as it has been said as well, it is now in a critical juncture. And I think it's both for China, but also it will become much much more significant globally if 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 really the way goes to opening the financial sector and being much more active uh, outside, as as it, it has been seen in latest developments. So against this background, I would Raise three points basically, or maybe three and a half. One is the um, say the interaction between the financial market dynamics and uh, and the growth trajectory. Clearly, um, as Alícia also said, the financial sector has been used as a countercyclical uh, policy tool, and uh, and this has been seen um, in many, in many instances. Last one, 2016-17, clearly. Uh, a large-scale stimulus introduced uh, after the global financial crisis, and using state firm investment clearly as a counter-cyclical to pop-up demand. Um, That has obviously good consequences in terms of growth, but not that good in terms of uh, what kind of investments and what is the the return of these investments, not only in the short term, but also looking forward. So, The banking system has been uh, driven by, to a certain extent, economic policy decisions or objectives. Not only by direct investment, but also by kind of pressure to lend to state firms that that then uh, do the, the actual investment in the real economy. So what we have now as a situation, and uh, already these two cleaning uh, processes and maybe the third one coming, is the result of that. So a a lot of assets with a very low return, low quality of products, and and that seems to me that going forward, given the increasing constraints in terms of what are the actual potential returns in the growth developments, the quality of the assets becomes much more important because it's not so easy to get that growth as in the past. So this quality of assets is a a real issue. And here I think there is an interlinkage between, uh, you know, what is the kind of growth model that will uh, be developing uh, in China. So this is my second point. I see the link between the financial reform and overall reforms in the economy. So depending to the extent that, for instance, the the development of the the new technologies uh, and all these forward-looking sectors- is going to be done in the same way as in the past. So with a clear state-led direction and therefore a clear state-led- using the financial system to push this particular industry. So it will be a bit of new sectors, but the same kind of model- that it was used for the old sectors. So that's a question mark. So that will depend on, on that. So but this clear interaction between how the financial flows will be uh, put into the economy uh, to drive these new uh, growth uh, sectors. Um, now, um, a second point in the same uh, in the same uh, block is the 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 question of uh, I'm thinking about the possibilities for foreign investors etc. in China is the issue of the level playing field, and in particular, what is the access to finance for local firms versus non-local firms. And there, obviously, the role of the financial sector will be also uh, crucial. And whether this offering of finances from from the banking sector or from the financial sector will be driven purely or mainly by commercial criteria or not. So that's uh, uh, the point, and and also the issue of implicit or explicit guarantees that uh, play a role in how the financial sector interacts with the real economy. So there, just to summarize, the link between financial reform and overall reform in the economy. Uh, The third point is more looking on the global and the impact on on the global uh, economy and global markets. And here there are the two aspects, as were mentioned, the inflows and the outflows. So the the landscape has changed a lot and there is a sharp rise in outflows. And and a corresponding fall in China's foreign reserves uh, for that reason. so at present, China is acting to support the RMB as actively resisted sharp devaluation, but that also means um, um, a certain impact on external surpluses. So um, uh, it means also that China continues to rely on domestic investments very much uh, to maintain demand with the implications for imbalances that, that we know. So um, if China opens up capital markets, uh, let's say, too quickly. If we can say it like this, Um, well, we know that they may have implications as we have seen in other parts of the world because uh, are there the regulatory and and, uh, supervisory instruments ready to manage these inflows uh, in a a balanced way? Uh, At at the current juncture, I would say no, but um, it depends how this uh, opening, I mean, the speed of the opening and the sequencing evolves in relation to the evolution of the regulation and the regulatory framework um, I think that uh, the question that was uh, slightly touched by by some of you about um, the outflow of capitals the investment abroad and the, the increasing uh, lending role of China etc brings me to a point that I didn't um, thought about mentioning it but it is All these discussions that we are now uh, having at the global level in terms of transparency, in terms of uh, to what extent, um, I mean, the the fact that China is becoming a very important lender uh, means that uh, all these issues should be tackled not just by own decisions of China or own decisions of somebody else, but this important lender should be more and more part of the global fora where these questions are being discussed, should be more and more incorporating the reporting requirements, the, the transparency and all, and all these, uh, these aspects. So without going at, at length uh, on that, but uh, clearly, um, I think there is a need to engage contra- constructively at the international level, uh, and I think it's the interest of all players, not only the others, but also China, because uh, already now they are... Uh, some countries that are really facing uh, that default in the world, where China is one of the major, lenders, if not the major, and I think that it will be becoming clearer that there is an interest also there to be part of a global uh, management of of these flows. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Elena, for these very thoughtful remarks and uh, sort of showing also um, some of the the thinking um, that that um, European policymakers, of course, have on on what what uh, Alicia described, what is happening in in China, Alicia. I, I want to give you a chance to to react uh, to a few points and also uh, open up for uh, for a few questions. But let me let me also add my one or two uh, uh, small points. Um, I guess my, my, my first point is is really on the savings rate because, uh, I mean, in a sense, all of this is driven by an extremely high savings rate, right? I mean, um, if you have a savings rate of close to 50%, necessarily, um, you will have uh, an increasing financial ses- system and necessarily, there will be bad investments. And I think you described that. And necessarily... Uh, there will be pressure to uh, to invest more and to invest more also abroad and channel some of the savings abroad. So, so I guess my my first question is, where do we see the savings rate going in the next ten years? Um, because you know, uh, uh, if it if it stays where it is, there will be more restructuring, bad loans. There will be more bad investment. There will be more bad investment also abroad, and uh, and and. Uh, <coughs> at the same time of course there will be also quite some growth so so it's it's really this this trade off but it's a sort of starting to be quite an unhealthy an unhealthy uh, way of of doing it uh, uh, perhaps you can remark uh, uh, give some remarks on that now my second question is on uh, uh, on the role of the state and if you could say a little bit more more about this so so i think you showed basically 50% or so of the financial system uh, or at least of the banking system, is more or less directly under state control. I understand it's mostly central, but also the local uh, uh, the local entities play a role. Now, on the other hand, um, uh, there is sort of this notion of market discipline and, you know, can markets ensure a better allocation of capital? And so you have those two competing forces, and Elena, I think, was also pointing to that, that, that it's a political vehicle, the financial system, for doing certain things. And at least in our philosophy, um, we would say, well, if that becomes too strong and too permanently part of the uh, economy, there will be a lot of bad bad credit and a lot of bad, bad allocation of capital, because things will just be driven by political vested interests instead of um, real economic needs. Um, so, so how how much is that changing? Um, how much um, is the state uh, state's role uh, uh, changing in um, in the banking system? I guess my my third point is on. Um, I think you mentioned it on the on the uh, Alibaba and the new platforms and so on. I mean, which I mean, the fintech industry, as you know, the biggest fintech industry is in China um, in the world, by far the biggest. Um, and um, the argument that is always given why it is so big in China and why, why it has so grown so quickly in China is not just market size. I mean, of course, you leverage um, and you can immediately um, sort of tap hundreds of millions of, of consumers. But it's also the fact that um, there is this view that the Chinese financial system is underdeveloped in the sense of providing financial services to uh, to, uh, to um I guess ordinary citizens. Um, so, 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 where is China's financial system heading on the front of being a ser- financial services provider? I mean, okay, we we know state-owned financial system give big credit for big investment projects. This we know, but what about the financial services for citizens, which um, certainly must be must be absolutely critical you want to react to what you heard, and and then uh, let me see how much time do we. Yeah, let let me let me get a few questions from from the audience. We took note, lots of notes. So, so I have I have Marek um... from from Brugel.
5: Okay, Marek Dombrovski Brugel. I have um, a question which follow-up, counter question. Um, about savings, but not only savings in the context of demographic uh, transition which China just started, quite dramatic. Uh, is it not the risk that China will repeat Japanese scenario of 1980s, let's say, with, with rapid demographic change, which led to, th- slowdown of growth and also uh, savings or, or declining rate of savings and uh, what kind of consequences it may have for financial sector and the second question is back um, <laughs> to what you thought about uh, some broader narrative which was very popular at the time of global financial crisis, China must uh, move from export-oriented growth to to, uh, domestic uh, demand-oriented growth. But I didn't catch well from your presentation whether this kind of transition in growth model will be really helpful for financial sector. Because my concern is that as far as you, you know, orient for external, demand. Still, uh, companies must must meet some um, criteria, competitive, uh, competitive criteria. When you start to stimulate domestic demand, then you can have, as, as we saw, a lot of, of uh, uh, politically driven investment projects, politically driven, for example, social projects, which is not still the case of China, but it may be also some, some case. Thank you. Thank you. The gentleman here.
6: Thanks a lot. Um, I have a question regarding Tim Rudig, uh, uh, European Think Tank Network on China, on behalf of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Um, My question uh, um, would be about uh, the role of the state implicit um, uh, credit guarantees and and, 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 uh, maybe... Uh, Also, the question of uh, uh, credit pricing, because you have been describing very convincingly the basically state permission, both on the financial side, but as well on the side of recipients actually of loans, and you've also already said that the next cleanup will be more costly due to uh, reduced um, growth. So my question is basically: How does the do you see signs that are promising from the uh, party state of actually? tackling the issue of implicit uh, guarantees and, of, uh, and, and and then improving credit pricing to actually then tackle the root causes of what we have seen in the last couple of years to basically, well, I mean, your, your uh, predictions seem to be not that optimistic that we won't see something similar happening again, but still it would be interesting in what kind of policies you see in that field. Thanks.
7: I am visiting professor at the Peking University HSBC Business School and former uh, colleague of uh, uh, working in EU institutions. I have two questions. One question is for the Chinese uh, participants and maybe for Alyssa. Uh, It concerns uh, the need also to find financing for the internal development in China. We have heard a lot of examples of uh, financing activities for the One Road, One Belt and uh, FDI outside China, but there's this big challenge also to develop the rural part of China now. There are a lot of aspects related to this, which are not financial, like, like uh, ownership of, of land, etc., but there's also a financial question. And in the further development of the Chinese uh, uh, banking sector, are there also reflections how to learn of, uh, from some of the interesting European examples? We have regionalized banking system. for example, we have cooperative banks who are very good in financing small projects in a more decentralised manner, also in rural parts. Uh, and my question is a bit, what is uh, the thinking to help also these internal developments via a specific uh, development of the banking sector? And then, my second question is uh, related to Elena, and you have to decide how much you can can share. And this is, uh, we have heard the difficulty of the regulatory differences. And this is an issue which we have on all levels cooperating with China. There is since 2013 an effort to come to an EU-China investment and trade agreement. And it would be an occasion at least to address some of the regulatory aspects. And my question is, Elena, are there uh, some indications how these negotiations are going? And are there also some uh, aspects which we might link to the financial uh, sector? And then maybe a more specific question even, uh, if one looks to this uh, Chinese situation with a lot of pilot projects and different rules, how to cope in an EU-China agreement with the specificity of China offering certain things on a, a specific level and how to include such uh, specificities into an EU China uh, agreement. A bit too many questions, I agree, but some Thank you. Uh, maybe quick answers. So there's behind you,
0: there's. Uh, and, and I think yes. a close um, Hello, I'm
5: Augusto Soto from Dialogue with China project in the south of Barcelona. Um, just a brief Question for Mrs. Alicia Herrero and uh, Mr. uh, Wundram Wolf. Uh, Simply, um, which are the challenges for for our banks along the Belt and Road Initiative and the challenges for the Chinese banks? We're talking of unilateralism, we're talking of um, an opaque mood from China's side, according to, an analy- uh, according to some analy- uh, analysts in Brussels, uh, Berlin, also in the wake of the visit of uh, Angela Merkel in, in in China now. So, thank you.
0: Thank you. Okay, I think we have to close on the questions. Um, Alicia, you have a first floor and then each of you gets one or two minutes uh, yeah. to, to pick what remains. What I
1: simply can't answer all the questions because... Uh, you focus on the key. Yeah, yeah. So- I'll be very, very brief, uh, to the point that you may not understand my answers because you know there's so many questions. But in a telegraphic way, saving ratio, of course, coming down, this brings me to Japan. There's no way that China's saving ratio can be as high. You already mentioned that in the in the light of uh, aging, but you know, aging, China's aging today is not comparable to, Ch- to Japan's aging today. So we're talking about Japan shelving off one percentage point of its labor force every year. China, you need to wait to, to 2035 to get there. So, China's like uh, Japan in
0: the
1: 80s. Yes, that's right. So, so basically, we are 20 years, close to 20 years uh, still. So that process won't happen tomorrow. So I do think we're going to reach 65 trillion, in other words, bank assets, because the saving ratio is not going to come down aggressively tomorrow. What will happen in 2035, we can discuss. But I'm just saying, it's not it, it, Japan. China is not Japan today. I mean, you're right, 80s. And, and that China has started to accumulate additional external assets, which I think is what China is after. It can be lending. It can be FDI. It can be anything on Earth. What is more difficult, though, uh, is that China, in the current circumstances, this brings me to the capital account liberalisation, accumulates what China should be, in my opinion, accumulating even faster, which is portfolio investment, yeah? Mm. I mean, all of, any, any Chinese household would probably feel very comfortable having a little bit of their eggs in a different basket. But that's where the constraints are today, which pushes the, the, the domestic saving ratio even higher than Japan because Japan didn't have that issue. Japan has a massive home bias. We all know that, and it's been estimated. But it's not 100. In China, it's a forced home bias of 100. So, so this makes the saving ratio even higher than it ever was in Japan. Mm. So, so in other words, it will come down slowly, because we're not yet there, and second, from a very high level, so the banking sector will continue to grow in China. I don't think we can avoid that. And the internationalization will, will happen because of the return on assets is very low. So yeah, so of course they should, in my opinion, for everybody's sake. Of course, beyond the reporting into the BIS, we can also think about the Paris Club. You were referring probably to Venezuela. I mean, it's going to be a hard uh, potato to deal with outside any. But of course, you may argue that China and Russia being the two largest. Um, the two largest investors in Venezuela, or lenders, uh, may find it more appropriate to deal with that, you know, on, the, on a bilateral basis. Maybe that explains why we're still where we are. But indeed, uh, I would fully agree with that. So that's the saving ratio, the you know, um, and yes, there will be a new phase in the light of the to escape, because saving ratio will come down only slowly, blah blah blah. So I think we won't avoid one more boost of, you know, clean up that will probably be needed at a much higher cost than it has happened in the last two instances. We are actually in the second right now. The role of the state, there were many questions on the role of the state. I have a firm view, whether I'm right or not. I mean, we have the regulators here, and they can, uh, of course, claim otherwise. But I don't think China is ready to give up what to me is an almighty power that China has, which is the control, the firm control of any strategic sector. But finance is a strategic sector for China because that is the instrument to obtain a number of goals. So my take is that you won't see a reduction in control. You may see less, you know, in percentage. Maybe, you know, there may be, because it's very costly to keep this going, yeah? So you may see more IPOs, you know, a slight uh, diversification of the private um, ownership of the banking sector. But the control, in my opinion, will remain in state-on-hands, which brings me back to the need for a new cleanup when the time comes. Because, But, you know, the, the, the thing is, this is a very simple calculation that I once thought about. And actually, uh, Edward prasad mentioned this to me, and I was like, wow, he yeah, has a point as many times. If, uh, this is the the, the thing, if you have a 50% saving ratio, that is growing too little. Mm -hmm. I mean, it should grow 20%, (laughs) you know, basically. (laughs) Of course there's a misuse of of those uh, uh, kind of...
6: Investments.
1: Yeah, actually, trapped savings, yeah? Yeah. Trapped savings, to a large extent, have to be misinvested because Otherwise, growth rate in China would be double. I mean, it's as simple as that. But at least you get that growth rate. You know what I mean? Like, think about a Chinese policymaker. Yes, maybe. But what is the, what is the alternative uh, option? Well, but that, that,
0: that relates to then the question of, uh, you know, what kind of financial services do you provide to customers, okay, right? Okay, but they're so holding that differently, okay. That, that's basically, basically, people are forced to hold, uh, hold their savings in low return deposits yeah. or, yeah. you know, and, well, it's and that, it, that's the way you can afford it, right? Yeah, but
1: that, this is becoming increasingly difficult because China is also offering, pushing actually, when you talked about, you know, um, I don't know, uh, and financial, so Alibaba's financial arm yes. of any of these new financial, I would even argue, monsters because they're massively growing. So it must be very scary from the side of the regulator to see all of that. I think that in a way China is saying, okay, I keep this model because it brings me the growth I need and, you know, I need to escape the middle income trap and this is the way to do it. Yeah. It may be a little bit costly, but frankly it's worked out. So I don't want to get out of the boat too early. I need to get there, and I can understand that. But on the other hand, they say, but I have this wonderful fintech or, you know, related tech sector that can offer the financial services to, to individuals, and, and it all looked very nice. But the problem is, of course, the growth of the non-banking institutions with the risk-associated, unregulated P2P became a nightmare. So, so now we, they're trying to square the circle, by bringing, you know, the single asset man- the asset management regulator, your, also your, the merger of CSRC with the insurance regulator, all of that to bringing back to the balance sheet, what was literally, you know, uh, mushrooming everywhere, which was all of, but that's going to be very difficult because you'll have a hole, which is the capital. You know, the minute you bring it back, you need the actual capital. Mm-hmm. So this is why I think Again, going back to European banks, I mean, that market is going to be so flooded with Chinese banks issuing to get the capital needed. That won't be enough because still the state-owned control needs to remain. So, you know, it's going to be very tough to just put the money that keeps at least the share or... or So it's not easy, but they are trying this way, yeah? Through the, what they call, new private banks as well, you know, trying to serve the, the households. And, by the way, in a, to a large extent, whatever is transactional is already done because all of the payment system is outside the banking sector, as far as households are concerned already. So they're like leapfrogging, in other words. They, they won't have these retail banks that we have in Europe because they are leapfrogging that to new private banks or tech-related uh, financial institutions. It's, like, it's kind of a very big experiment for the world, actually. So that, that is market discipline, you know my views there. I think that's not the key priority now, I mean, to put it very bluntly. Uh, the, because if you really want market discipline, it's just impossible with the amount of state ownership you have in China. It's just not going to happen. And, and uh, I guess, um, well, Japan, I answer implicit guarantees. Uh, a little bit, I think, is, is really what I already said. Uh, BRI, rural China, I think this is related, the two questions, because a lot of what is happening under the and Road Initiative is rural China. So if you think about the Pakistan China Economic Corridor, all the way to Guadar, this is the development of basically the west of China. So a lot of the money we think is going to Pakistan is actually also going to west China. I mean, it's like a kind of developing both at the same time. The only way to develop the West sustainably is to develop what is next to the West. Yeah? Sure. So, so this is the. So, I've seen the analysis of the cut in both uh, cost of transportation um, and prices, of course, um, and time, sorry, of uh, shipping from Guadar, uh, deep port, uh, all of the gas from um, Iran and, of course, Qatar. I mean, to back to West uh, China, it's just everything is going to go through that route. Uh, so, you know, for the Malacca Strait, uh, it's, it's just this shipping. We had shipping companies um, in the European Business Summit saying that ah, we're not worried about this. We can never I mean, they're focusing on, I don't know, maybe to kind of transportation. No. It's, not something to this world. it's whatever is in between countries and work that makes the difference. And there's actually some, not many, but some highly populated countries on the way, Turkey being one. And I don't think you're going to go all the way to the Malacca Strait to sit there, let alone South Asia, which for many, and you know there's a very famous book on this, that's the center of the world. In the next in this century actually, not even the next century. That's where the largest concentration of population will ever happen, so Wadar makes sense to me. So in other words, I just think that we think all of this is highly political and irrelevant. I think it's massively strategic and relevant so to help develop West China. And it's going to bring new routes that we had ever thought about, that we were still shipping, you know, basically going across the globe for things that are as close as we see. So I do I think that it could make sense yeah.
2: Chief. I think Elijah uh, um, answers very well. I just uh, there's uh, one question uh, about the uh, inclusive finance, and also mention uh, something uh, I forgot to say um, earlier um, uh, The China large banking sector is not designed to serve the rural population, and uh, they want to serve the big infrastructure project. They don't have the experience. Uh, the rural household don't have the collaterals or credit history. It's difficult. Um, and also the, uh, the the hard task of a poverty reduction still should be carried out using the fiscal policy rather than the financial credit policy now but the, the real hope is coming from the financial technology fintech companies um, companies like uh, alibaba and financials not only help them sell their goods also really uh, provide pretty good uh, credit tracking so I have mobile phone. You have access to finance. That's the things are changing One thing I forgot to find it, uh, mentioned early on the, the opportunities for the foreign uh, countries in China right now another thing uh, Opportunity is uh, using China as a funding source uh, The Panda bonds uh, so far still very small. They only issued about five Panda bonds, but the first one was the World Bank I think all the rest of you uh, were all European companies, Volkswagen, KfW. Um, the Panda Bond is an RB denominated bond. You raised the onshore, you can take money out. Um, so far, still very smart, expected to grow. Uh, the so called international board, the chance for the foreign company to get a list in China stock exchange, that may be still a few years away. It won't happen anytime soon. Um, the other thing is um, China launched a so-called QDLP program, qualified domestic liability limited liability partnerships. That is, if uh, for foreign um, companies, most most hedge funds, but also large asset managers, uh, when they register have such status, they are able to get a quota, raise money in Shanghai and invest money abroad. As uh, Alicia said, with such a large uh, um, Saving and low return trapped um, at home, uh, the local population they have and the desire uh, to invest abroad. So this is also a great opportunity. I think right now, uh, like a UBS, <coughs> uh, Namura um, uh, Windtown uh, in London, those companies already acquired uh, 20 companies have acquired such a status. but a quota is still small mm. okay, so let's be
3: quickly. Uh, on a few points, first uh, saving rates. So probably my my, my, my mentioned number of 160 million each population China scare you, but I think we still have good news. First of all, you know, starting a couple years ago, Chinese government decided to relax. You know, the uh, three decades long the one couple one child policy. So now it's, uh, we have the policy now is one couple. I'm mean, two child. i mean, two, ch- two children. So uh, probably in the future, maybe I don't mean, This policy could be further relaxed. Secondly, I think the with. Yeah, secondly, I think I'd like to refer to you know productivity. So why are we talking about saving rates? So because based on your know, theory or based on you know a lot of research, we mentioned that you know for based on solo growth model. So the economic growth depends on human resources, capital, and productivity. Maybe now in the future, I'm sure China will continue and aged, however, probably the productivity will increase. So that's why, sorry about that, but let me come back again to the uh, technology. So China, you know, I mean, again, you know, refer to the Mr. Wolf that I mentioned. So why, you know, Alibaba, you know, are growing so fast in China? So I think now the Chinese government now, is more or less, they are quite open. They really would like to market, play uh, a crucial way in terms of the asset allocation, et cetera. And that's why they are quite open, I mean, encourage, you know, the high-tech companies uh, to develop uh, in China. So if this trend could continue and could be uh, uh, in the in the next pack, et cetera, I think probably Chinese labor productive could be increased. so in that sense, so even China is aging, but we if we productive increase, uh, we sc- we still couldn't maintain a re- we re- remain uh, GDP growth at a reasonable uh, level first, the se- that's first one regarding the saving rates. <clears throat> so if saving rate dropped, probably eventually that's we don't have much uh, negative impact from that. Secondly, I think regarding the internal developments and the professor from Peking University. So, indeed, I think you are you reach a very, very important country in China. You know, President Xi uh, may identify the three key tasks for this year and probably for next few years. So, one is uh, you know, uh, the um, uh, poverty reduction. Secondly is the envir- environmental production. The third one is financial risk, to control financial risk. So in that sense, in you know, all the you know, Chinese, uh, I mean, either the uh, financial institutions or agencies, the ministry, et cetera, they pay a lot of attention to help uh, to, uh, on the poverty reduction. In that, you talk a lot about the inclusive finance, for example. So this topic has been quite, you know, uh, popular in China, everybody talking about this. I'm sure in this, you know, European country, for example, uh, I'm sure you have lots of experience in that to help China. And uh, China working hard on that. I think that also explains the reason why, you know, China uh, over past, uh, I mean, a few years, et cetera, so many called rural banks, you know, they have been developed, established in, in China. I am not seeing the good or bad, probably too many, right? Probably too many rural banks having in W China because some of them they don't care about probability. Eventually we'll have some financial risks. But that's not I'm going to talk about the focus of what I'm talking about. That's mean Chinese government, including central and local government and also many financial institutions are working on that. So probably they want to try do do some tests. To see how it works, how to help to reduce uh, poverty, I mean, uh, poverty, reduction, mean poverty reduction, etc. Because President Xi already set targets to lead to uh, eliminate, you know, the poverty people by 2020. Only two years. Yeah, we still have, I think, three, 20 or thirty million population now. So it's very hard But the target over there. The last one is uh, <coughs> uh, one by one Jordan the initiative. So from my standing I think you know of course there was competition between Chinese financial institutions and foreign Financial institutions. I think that healthy competition. I think healthy competition. Because when we go to a third market, for example, in Latin America, or from African country, for example, or even go to Eastern Europe, I'm sure your know, Chinese bank. We need a local partner. Because we don't culture, we don't we don't speak language. You know, we we don't have branch, etc. So in essence, I'm sure you know Chinese financial institutions or banks. They have sincere you know willingness to collaborate with local partner. So in order to you know to to jointly develop. You know, it's a, it's a win-win situation. I mean, uh, one by one news too. So that is not only zero games, I mean, uh, zero sum games. So I think everybody can benefit from that as long as we can find, you know, good way to collaborate uh, with each other. So I'm quite optimistic about this.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm, glad you I'm glad that you mentioned um, Latin America competition in Latin America because Alicia is about to publish another piece on China, <laughs> uh, China's competition sure. with European companies in Latin America. <laughs> But Elena, you have the last word.
4: please. <laughs> well, I think that uh, we are much over the time, but uh, there are so many important points that were made. I will just pick up some of, I will give some, some thoughts. I mean, on the question about um, export uh, led versus domestic demand and the role of the financial sector, I would just say that I don't think that because it's export is necessarily more competitive or more productive because the, the whole role of the subsidies policy in, in some of these export sectors, it has been very important, and it's still very important. So, I don't see a one-to-one that you move from export to domestic, you become less productive. It depends. And then I would say, on the financing of the growth model, again, it, to me, it's not so much about who is the owner or, or what is the policy, but it's more about what are the criteria that are driven the decisions. So, if the financial sector is told, let's say, to invest in high-tech, whatever, which will increase productivity and so on, maybe it's a positive step. If it is told to do something else or to invest in other sectors that are not going to bring about uh, high-productivity growth, then it will not be good. So the same kind of policy decision-making can lead to many different results. um, on, on this um, using uh, the financial sector, again, I mean I think that if it is really used like a sort of a substitute for fiscal policy, then I think it's not good. If it is used to facilitate or to promote investment on, on, on forward-looking sectors which may also have a demand component, but that's not the objective, then we can have better results so um, on the international, etc., I would say that, um, uh, okay, we had this, this experience. I, don't, I cannot say much about this trade and investment because I'm not really inside, so I would not be probably fully up to date. What I sense is that it's not becoming easier lately, this kind of <coughs> conversations. Maybe whatever may happen with the US may change that, as well in terms of the bilateral relations between China and, and Europe. So I have some hopes that uh, that could help but it is true that the experience we had with the tiny thing that it was you know when we launched the investment plan and then high interest from china to to be involved etc but after all everything became quite limited in the sense that when the specificities for china companies and specificities to be respected for china investment and so on uh, in europe we don't have these rules we have other rules and we cannot Accommodate that because we should do it for others as well. So it doesn't really fit with our uh, Competition system and and, and etc. So then it was much less enthusiasm So that's just to show that it is it is difficult, but I think that we we cannot escape from that discussion about trade investment or trade and investment or maybe investment and and then trade depending what um, so we have this possibility also to disentangle a little bit the trade and the investment negotiations uh, currently in, in Europe. So we have to see what what is more promising. And on the uh, lending outside and, and, and the Paris Club and all this, I was not thinking about Venezuela. No. I was thinking about one of the African countries where it's more than just China, Russia. It's not necessarily <laughs> Russia, but it's a little bit more diverse, but main China. And there is an attempt here with the help of the Paris Club to get to some good results, so that might be a showcase. Let's see how it works out, but it could be a positive step to see that cooperation at the international level can bring a better result, including for, for, for China. Um, and I would say that another aspect is about the lending conditions. I mean, I, I have some insights on some of these investments in Latin America or in other countries, in Africa. Uh, indeed, I mean, there is a lot of lending with no conditions, uh, piling up debt, in, in those countries or in the corporate sector of those countries, and when, when the problem comes, somebody has to do something, either an IMF program or uh, an international rescue package or whatever. So there is an issue here that um, needs to be addressed. It, it cannot, uh, it, 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 it has implications for the country, but also for the stability of the system. And final point, I think that all these things you mentioned about investment in Pakistan for the China, et cetera, I think that geopolitical matters that we didn't have the time to discuss are very, very important. Iran, India, I would mention in this context. So sure. That, that, I think that's
0: uh, scope for, uh, for another event. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> okay. So let please join me in, in thanking, uh, thanking our panelists. And my apologies for uh, running over time. Uh, it's entirely my fault. So thank you f- to all the panelists.